Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Nate Wall. We're at the Troon Vineyard Tasting Room in McMinnville. It's April 5th, 2023. Nate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, First question to get you started is why wine? Why wine? Um, So the first question I would like to answer is my voice. Um, You know, we had a a large event up here uh, for the, the kicking off the Roan Rangers in Oregon yesterday. And by talking all day over a crowd of people, I appear to have lost my voice partially. So um, just want to caveat <laughs> my sound quality as we begin here. Um, so anyways, but um, to answer why wine, uh, what I think I have found so interesting, and I'm sure you have found interesting doing so many of these interviews, is there is no direct path to wine for almost everybody that you've interviewed, I bet. Um, And I'm definitely one of those wanderers in my path to wine as well. Um, I guess the the way I got into it was through microbiology. Um, And I made a joke yesterday uh, when I was discussing that my answers to most questions, I try to in some way involve uh, microbes in my answer. But um, uh, originally for, so you know, I was a, a Minnesota kid who escaped Minnesota to, to go to undergraduate school in Florida and ended up uh, studying um, molecular microbiology, uh, geomicrobiology in particular. And my thesis professor would always joke with the geologist, you know, who that like, all of the processes they were looking at, you know, they thought of these as these physical processes, but really everything came down to microbes. Um, one of the one of the projects I was looking at was there's these type of um, aquatic plants called caraphytes that um, calcify, so they end up getting um, this calcium carbonate, almost like a shell, almost almost like marine organisms have calcium carbonate shells. They would get this calcium carbonate coating, and people were trying to look at all of these like um, channels and in the plant stems for like how they could possibly do that. And my professor was like, well, they're not doing it. It's the microbes that are living on them that are doing it. And and this was, you know, this was mid mid nineties. Um, so we were just starting to get some of the tools to look at these things. Um, you know, uh, the, the tools we had to look at microbes were um, these really basic, we would just throw all these enzymes at something, at DNA, chop it all up, look at the, the, the little chunks of DNA that resulted and try to like match that fingerprint with some known fingerprint. It was really crude. There was you know, no, no DNA um, uh, sequencing available except for you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a couple labs in the United States. So it was, it was dark ages of this stuff, but you know, just initially, just looking at the world through that lens was, hey, like everything is microbially mediated. Um, it's like microbes, they were the first thing on this planet. You know, they will inherit it after we're gone, hopefully later rather than sooner, but you know, uh, you can't really tell our current trajectory. And so just endlessly fascinating diversity um, in the microbial world. So when I finished that degree, I was, I, I really like studying the microbes, but I wanted to get more into applications. So um, I moved out to UC Berkeley um, to get a graduate degree in environmental engineering. And 
I, I specialized in, um, in microbes, in both uh, what's called in situ bioremediation, so using um, microbial populations in the soil to degrade contaminants, as well as setting up things like stormwater treatment wetlands, which um, you could use to treat uh, runoff, like we had some projects in like LA and the Bay Area and stuff. And what we were finding there as well is while the plants are important to, to treat some of this, these, uh, this runoff, uh, what was really important is just the fact that they were providing surface areas for microbial and, and biofilms. And so once again, it all comes down to microbes. And so doing that, I mean, and, and microbes are capable of, you know, you can have really nasty um, contaminated groundwater aquifers. And if you, if you pull the, the right levers, you can inject a couple things for them to eat, and they will then either eat the contaminant and breathe out something clean or breathe the contaminant um, and uh, are capable of cleaning up just uh, amazingly difficult chemical compounds. Um, they can break them down if given the, the right setting uh, to do so. So once again, I was just astounded by the breadth and the diversity of the microbial kingdom out there and what they can do if just given the opportunity to do so. And so that was kind of like the, the background for it. Um, and of course, in UC Berkeley, uh, that's what do poor grad students do on the weekend? They drive up to Napa and Sonoma and um, you know, somebody, you draw straws, somebody gets the, the, has the job of the designated driver and then everybody else gets the taste all day. So. Um, that's, that's how it kind of started. And, and even right then, just, just as I was getting my, my master's degree, I was like, this wine thing is pretty interesting because, um, hey, there's microbes there too. But um, it, uh, it, it, it would take another 10 years for me to actually make that step, even though I thought about it then. Because then my, my now wife, um, she, she went to grad school at UC Santa Barbara, so then we were down in the Paso region. And that's um, in, you know, in Santa Barbara County, and, and that's where I really started getting interested in the Rhone varieties because Paso does that so well. Um, you know, was, we're able to taste, taste a, a bunch of the wineries around there. And so that was pretty fascinating. Um, but unfortunately, my wife decided she wanted to be a Fed, so she works for NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which meant we had to move to DC. So then we were living in DC for five years um, and trying to do environmental work on the East Coast at, at that time was incredibly frustrating and um, just a very different mentality than the West Coast. And that's when I decided to um, to think more about this wine thing, you know, you don't appreciate what you have until you lose it. So leaving the West Coast, going to the East Coast, it's like, ah, I don't get to go to these wineries. But then, um, but then Virginia had this kind of burgeoning wine scene. Um, they were, you know, really, this is what, or, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and they were um, really starting to find their way um, in the wine world. And so and uh, I, I started going out to some of those wineries and one of the winemakers there was like, hey, I mean, you sound like you know what you're talking about. I could use a lot of help here. I was like, okay, great. So I just started working at some wineries in Virginia. Um, initially, it was just part-time and um, because I just found it fascinating and you know, quickly realized it's like, hey, you know, all of these people in Virginia, you know, they're just figuring this stuff out. Like, maybe I could do that too. And so finally, we were able to uh, and our, our East Coast stint um, got the choice to, to move back west, and my wife was able to finagle her way into a position in um, Portland. And so uh, when, we, when we moved out 
out to Portland, I decided that's it. I'm, I'm going to do the wine thing full time now and, and, and got into, made, made the leap. Um, unfortunately, that was during the Great Recession. <laughs> so um, it was a very challenging time to, to enter uh, the industry as there was um, no growth of the Oregon wine industry at that time. In fact, you know, a lot of constriction. Uh, everybody was kind of downsizing. So. Um, it, maybe that was a blessing and a curse because I ended up doing a lot of um, gig work before gig work was a thing, right? Just, um, you know, helping out in all sorts of different people's cellars and helping bottling here, helping racking there. And um, so I, I really started, you know, meeting a lot of people in the industry and just was uh, amazed and just uh, about how open and welcoming this community was. And to this day, I am grateful for the Oregon wine industry's just openness, the culture of sharing, the non-competitiveness. Um, that was n not what I had seen in, in other parts of the country at all. And so uh, Oregon, the Oregon wine community is just a very special place. And just seeing that absolutely solidified my desires. Like this is, not only is this a fascinating industry, it's, it's a great and supportive industry. And I really wanted to be a part of it. So yeah, I just kind of went from there. So before we get back to Oregon, tell me about uh, your your sort of personal wine education as a consumer on the consumer side. You talked about kind of being in the Napa Sonoma area, then then down in Paso. Um, tell me about learning wine and about uh, starting to appreciate it. At what point did it kind of cross from something that you appreciated to something you thought you know I could actually make this or I could actually do this? Yeah. Um, so I think in in California, especially you know Napa and Sonoma, you go to these ridiculous tasting rooms and everything, and everything just seems like way out of reach, you know? Um, it, it's just, that is otherworldly, and that's part of why they do that, you know? Um, really put themselves up on this pedestal that seems, you know, insurmountable for us mere mortals to ascend to. Um, so it was, uh, Paso is not like that as much, and, and Virginia was not like that at all. I mean, we're just talking barns and like little sheds, and, and so like, I guess that was that was part of it is seeing us like oh this this isn't as you know this isn't up on the mountaintop like you don't you know you, you could get there if you tried um, that's so Virginia really showed me that it doesn't have to be you know what my earlier experiences in Napa and Sonoma were it could be something more more down to earth you know more more hands on more attainable. Um, also, what was really interesting about moving, and I, I've often said one of the best things that, that happened to me by uh, living in D.C. for five years is that in, um, on the East Coast, the, the wine selection, it's almost all old world, right? So it's, it's actually ch both cheaper and much lower carbon footprint to get a bottle of Bordeaux um, on the East Coast than it is to get a bottle of California wine because, you know, um, container ship across the Atlantic is um, way cheaper and, um, you know, way less footprint on, than trying to over overland um, on a truck, a, a bottle of cab from Napa or something. So I had been, you know, living in California I was drinking all Californian wine, as one does, and then moving to the West Coast, I was like, wow, this California wine is actually really expensive out here, but like, what's this other stuff, you know, which I had never even looked into. Um, and so all of a sudden, I just had this dramatic, you know, palate shift of all 
West Coast and almost predominantly California wines to all you know Italy and, and Germany and France and Spain and um, I had never really dug into that before so so actually before I even started working in um, the wineries in Virginia like that's what I started doing is is you know started like blogging about that to you know the, a phrase I heard about blogging is uh, which is um, one of these things I probably shouldn't say in the interview but I think it's funny is um, never have so many said so little to so few. Um, so I was one of those many saying probably nothing of any particular value to very few people reading it. But um, for me, what it did is allowed me to um, kind of put my thoughts in order about, you know, I would do little things about like, oh, uh, do some blind tastings of like, um, you know, an Argentinian Malbec versus a Cahors Malbec or something. And so I was trying to get in my mind, hey, what are the differences between all these different wines? Um, and I just had access to all these old world wines. And as I got more confident, I was able to like up my price point a little bit and start tasting, you know, what are kind of, you know, benchmark wines um, in, from these different old world regions. And so that's kind of what started building my my mental image of what wine could be um, is is looking at these old world regions and thinking wow okay like that's that's what this is like that's what this means and that also started making me think about that sense of place that terroir concept um, which had never been as strong uh, initially you know when I was in the late 90s or whatever in California but like old world, that's just that concept immediately jumps out at you. It's like, okay, you know, what what does this place taste like? And and you know, I could barely ever afford to taste Burgundy, um, you know, when I was um, out on the East Coast. But like starting to get the, that sense of place uh, was was really instructive, I think, to in, in how I eventually came to recognize that the importance of of sense of place in wine, and which is ultimately why I'm doing now what I'm doing with Troon, um, because I think what we're doing is really capable of expressing that sense of place by trying to remove, you know, the veneer of winemaking style or of, you know, um, viticulture that's more divorced from natural processes, really trying to get back to the roots of, of what, you know, wine growing and winemaking is and was, and um, yeah, try to express that sense of place. I'm curious about, I want to talk about your work in the Virginia wine scene a bit, but before I do that, I want to talk about your other, your day job there. Tell me about, you mentioned kind of a, fr a frustrating time for you uh, professionally. Tell me about what you were doing on the East Coast for, for day work and if there are any kind of no notable achievements or notable memories from that time. Uh, I would like to think there was. Um, I don't know. So um, I was still, I was doing environmental engineering, but in particular, I ended up uh, working in a lot of sustainability programs. Um, uh, doing more of the, the stormwater, um, you know, cleanup work. Uh, it was an interesting time to be there. So I was working just outside um, in a suburb just outside DC and green building was just becoming a thing. And so um, they, uh, I was working for a municipality and the US Green Building Council was trying to put together these green building codes to try to um, make uh, you know, buildings uh, more environmentally friendly. And, and since we were the ones who were um, part of part of what I did is also development review. So trying to um, every every uh, building proposal that came into the city, um, I would have to check off for a whole suite of environmental issues, and and trying to 
look at, okay, how can we change our own city's building codes to just bake in um, a lot of the sustainability. Um, so that's frustrating, of course, anytime you're trying to change laws. Um, you know, going before mayor and council, you know, and having all these citizen comments come in, you know, thinking that like by requiring, you know, no, no or low VOC paint, all of a sudden, like the entire industry is going to fall apart or something. Um, so just sitting up there and smiling and nodding and just you know waiting for your turn to speak, but um, it was really it was an interesting time to be a part of kind of that initial growth of the green building industry. So that was fun um, trying to to put together those codes, um, energy efficiency. It's it's actually where you know this is kind of inconvenient truth time. Um, so you know peak oil, all those concepts were starting to come to the forefront, and um, it's. In some ways, that experience is what led me into being wine. So what I was trying to do for so long was trying to convince other people of the right thing to do. And what I decided I wanted to do was, you know, I'm just going to try to do the right thing and lead by example because I learned how difficult it is to try to persuade someone to do something that they did not inherently want to do, um, even though it was pretty obviously the right thing to do for us, for the planet, for the future. It's very difficult to convince people to, to change their minds, change their attitudes, change their behaviors especially. Uh, so um, when, when I came to wine, it had always been a goal of mine. It's, it's like I want to do this in a way that can ultimately be just a serve as a guide for others. It's, I don't want to have to convince them, you know, I don't want to have to stand up on a pedestal saying my way is the right way, um, you know, you guys should all be doing this. It's, I would rather do the way that I, I think and know to be true and hope other people find that interesting enough to ask and to um, say, hey, you know, we, this is interesting, like, like how, how is this working? Like, you know, what can we, what can we learn from this? So, so yeah, it, and it took, you know, several decades really in, in the wine industry for me to find Troon in this project to actually get there, to, to be able to be that, um, to, to get where I wanted, to be doing what I wanted. Um, but um, it, uh, now, now that I'm here, that's, this is exactly what I think my entire history kind of had been leading up to in many ways is being able to, kind of do the work we're doing in the way we're doing it. And especially in a region like Southern Oregon, um, Applegate Valley, it's a, you know, it's a pioneering region. And that's, again, something I find fascinating is, is that experimentation aspect. Um, certainly going around California, you know, people felt very locked in place. Like, and of course, if you have land values like they are in Napa, you can't afford to experiment. Like, you can't afford to take that risk with fruit because, oh my gosh, you just paid however many tens of thousands of dollars a ton for that fruit. You're not going to experiment. You're going to, you know, take the path that gives you that, you know, 98 point score or whatever because that's what you need to be able to afford to do what you're doing. But in a, in a place like the Applegate, we don't have those constraints. So there's a lot more experimentation and and experimentation is necessary uh, because we are such a young region. I mean, well, in many ways, I guess Peter Britt was one of the first people to plant um, vines in the state of Oregon. Um, but then, you know, post-prohibition, it's the Willamette Valley that took off. So, um, you know, we are we are definitely a couple decades behind the Willamette Valley in terms of, of where we are as as a region, but that's exciting to me because there's so much experimentation that needs to be done to figure out uh, 
the right grapes to grow in the right places and just how do you, you know, what do you do to make those, those varieties reflect uh, what is Applegate? And so that will be endlessly fascinating for, for me and for a generation or two to come, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned kind of by happenstance meeting some meeting some people in the Virginia wine industry and, and being invited in. Tell me what your initial impressions were of the wines and the people there, but also of the work and the, yeah. what, what it meant to be in wine. Yeah. So um, in Virginia, um, you know, Certainly at that time, um, the, the folks who were doing most of the wine work were people coming from almost, almost doing it as a hobby, but not in like, I don't mean that in a denigrating way, like um, the winery I worked for, uh, he was a biopharmaceutical exec, um, and so that's how he had his money, really smart guy, um, you know, knew science inside and out, and what he chose to do with that is um, to buy some property in Virginia and, and plant some grapes. and. Um, you know, do, do this winemaking thing. Like uh, a lot of it was home winemaking gone awry, as he describes. You know, he's like, uh, he's like, I don't know exactly how this happened. I started making some wine in my garage, and now I own a vineyard and, and a winery. And um, there was a lot of that in Virginia, and I think that is what made it seem so accessible. Like, you know, he, he didn't even really mean to start a winery, he just did. Um, you know, he was buying enough grapes where finally the, the guy was like, you know, you're buying like half the grapes I make, like you should just plant your own vineyard. Um, so he's like, oh, I guess I should. So he did. Um, and so I think that accessibility uh, was was really interesting to me. Um, but also because there was all these really smart people who didn't have backgrounds in wine and were figuring it out, um, that made me feel that I could do the same. Um, ultimately, I did go through the Schmeckata program and, and get a legit education. But um, you know, there's, there's quite a lot to be said for um, taking, you know, obviously microbiology and environmental engineering. I had all the science and chemistry background. And uh, there's something to be said for just taking what you think you know, but then uh, experimenting and using the powers of observation and learning, you know, learning more experientially than theoretically. Because mm -hmm. um, you learn different things in different ways. And so, um, yeah, th there was, it was definitely interesting to me to see, back to your point about, you know, it was, you know, a lot more work than I was expecting, you know, like many people who think the, you know, winemaking is probably a glamorous profession. It's, it's not, it's farming first and foremost. And, you know, there's nothing glamorous about farming. It's hard work and uh, long days and, um, you know, aches and pains and things, but also just that connection, you know, to the earth, to a place, just hands-on connection. That's what I loved so much about engineering. Like, you know, I loved the theoretical in science um, with my undergraduate and my thesis work and things, but, uh, you know, I went over to environmental engineering because engineering is applied science. And um, some of the funny things about engineering is, you know, there's all these theoretical things, but engineers are like, well, yes, but if we just multiply by this exponent 0.285764 that we've, you know, tr found over building, you know, 30,000 bridges, if you multiply it by this, the bridge doesn't fall down. So, um, so we just use that number. Like, you guys can figure out why that number is important, but we just know it works. I mean, and that's what engineers do for everything. They're just, it's like, yeah, I mean, we, we get the theory, but like, we just know, hey, if we do it this way, it works. Um, and so, 
um, that's kind of what you know Virginia One was doing at the same time. It's like, hey, you know, we get the theory, but that theory does not apply to East Coast like grape growing. Like our conditions here are utterly dissimilar from. Um, you know, there's a reason why Thomas Jefferson tried many times and failed and gave up. I mean, you know, the, that is an unforgiving place to grow grapes, a difficult place to make wine. So it was kind of a uh, an interesting place to start. And then you you come out to the West Coast, and you're like, oh, it's so much easier here. It's like, and then especially Southern Oregon where you know, we don't have you know, half the precipitation that Willamette does, very, much lower disease pressure. You're just like, this is almost you know, too easy. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it's like nothing like, like you know, the people in Virginia just slogging it out. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I think, a good way to start to, to see you know, what, what is possible, uh, what you have to do to make things possible, because the passion uh, that someone needs in Virginia to do what they do is, is really high, because it is so hard that everyone who's doing what they're doing like, really loves what they're doing. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's addictive, that, that passion. And I think that's what a lot of people say about the wine industry, is so many people come to this industry you know, later in life for some reason, and almost everyone in it is really passionate about what they do, um, and it just makes it such a nice space to live in because everyone around you loves what they're doing, has these ideas, and and just really driven to to make you know do what they're doing and, and see see what's possible. So you mentioned obviously coming to coming to back to the West Coast and coming to Oregon and, and, and feeling like you you had upgraded a bit in the at least in the degree of difficulty or I guess downgraded in the degree of difficulty. Uh, tell me about you. You mentioned kind of your initial impressions of being welcomed into the industry. Tell me about some of the kind of initial contacts you made, jobs you did as you were kind of figuring out your way in Oregon wine. Yeah. So um, I guess the uh, I, I started when um, doing. Uh, doing harvest interviews from from uh, from my my office in the East Coast um, uh, with a bunch of different Oregon Oregon wineries and uh, eventually uh, was interviewed by Grant Coulter uh, who's the assistant winemaker at Beaufort at the time and um, he's he's the one who who opened that door for me and and uh, I I'd, I'd interviewed with him. What was interesting I was, I also interviewed with Andrew Rich at the, um, at the Carlton Winemaker Studio. Um, ultimately decided to, to go with Beaufrere, but as we were moving across the country, um, my wife is from uh, Western Colorado, and in her little hometown of like 5,000 people, Western Colorado, Andrew Rich was doing a wine dinner, like as we moved through the country. And so I like showed up at the wine dinner, and I was like, hey, you know, I, I, uh, I interviewed with you, and you know, ultimately, uh, you know, as you know, I, t I told you, it's like, I'm really interested in what you're doing, but you know, I, I really liked talking to Grant at, um, at Beaufrere, and, and Andrew's like, oh, you know, Grant and I are good friends, and um, he's like, oh, well, you know, uh, we, we sometimes pass resumes back and forth and uh, for, for harvest interns, and he's like, I guess you're one of the ones he didn't give me, or, you know, whatever, but um, I was like, oh, wow, like, these two people who I had no idea, like, already knew each other, which is, of course, a theme of the Oregon wine industry is that everyone knows everyone. Um, but, you know, just being able to talk to Andrew before I even got to Oregon about, you know, working at Beaufrere and um, getting his advice, it's like, okay, I've, I've been working in Virginia, but this is Oregon, and this is totally different, like, you know, what do you have for me? And so sitting down and talking to him for a while in the middle of my move out to Oregon was a kind of interesting experience. And so, yeah, getting, getting there, um, really getting involved in Beaufrere, um, but then 
fast forward, uh, my next harvest was with Andrew Rich. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think Beau Frere was the, the perfect introduction. I mean, you couldn't ask for better mentors um, uh, than, than the crew at Beau Frere. So, um, and, and that, you know, definitely, if I didn't know it from Virginia, working at Beau Frere, um, it was a, a monumental harvest that was, kind of thinking back to it, so that was swine flu time, so the, the first minor pandemic we had, and um, two of our interns went down with, with swine flu, and so we, we only had, um, me and one other intern did like the entire harvest where normally they would have three or four interns, and so like I don't remember how much it was, 150 some odd tons that um, I pretty much punched down all 150 tons of that. You know, like we would take turns, sometimes one of us would get to do the readings, the other one would do all the punch downs or pump overs or, but um, yeah, that was a lot of work. Uh, you know, 4 a.m. like uh, end times, almost like all harvest long. And so it was, uh, I was like, okay, you know, this is, this is a lot of work, but you know, I was addicted. And so that's, I, if I didn't know it before, I was like, yeah, this is, this is the right thing. So yeah, Beaufort was was a, a great entry for me, and and then you know I'd always been interested you know since Paso uh, the the Rhone varieties, and Andrew was also an amazing teacher in that respect, um, as being able to you know and and whenever you talk about Rhone, everything go, comes back to Randall Graham, um, but you know Andrew was assistant winemaker for Randall Graham for years, and so uh, yeah, kind of learning from you know learning from someone who learned from the master in some ways was a really great introduction to wine making with, uh, with Rhone grapes as well, yeah. So at what point, uh, you mentioned you're addicted and you're, 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 you know this is, this is something you wanna do, so at what point did, did Chemeketa enter the picture? Yeah, so I mean, you know, knowing knowing a whole bunch of science and chemistry can only get you, you know, so far. At some point, you probably need to learn more, and then that's that's what what was interesting. So Beaufort is, you know, all all uh, indigenous, uh, you know, spontaneous fermentations, and um, you know, in Virginia, I had been, you know, using more of the. It seemed a little more straightforward with, oh, well, you know, you get these yeast catalogs, and you flip through them, and each yeast is more amazing than the last. Like, I don't know if you've ever like read through these things. They're amazing, right? You're like, oh my gosh, this this is this yeast is incredible. The wine's going to be amazing, and then you read the next one. Whoa, this does this. It's like, so you know, I was used to to that, um, and then you know, at Beaufort, they there was none of that, um, and that's where I first started getting acquainted. Well, actually, you know what? We should jump way back. So when I was in um, D.C. Uh, the, the the French embassy put on what could have been one of the first biodynamic wine. Um, seminars. Uh, I, I don't know if they'd done it before. This was in 2005, maybe 2006, um, and and it was they flew in um, what could have been almost every biodynamic wine producer um, into the French Embassy in D.C., which is this palace, um, and um, and they had um, two days of seminars and then this grand tasting of you know. German, um, Austrian, uh, New Zealand, California, um, Spanish, I mean, South African, uh, anybody who was doing biodynamics at the time, um, they had all these winemakers there. Um, uh, Jolie was the, the, the lead uh, speaker there and the, uh, an amazing cheerleader of biodynamics. Um, but so, yeah, I, had, I had just started working kind of in, in wine in Virginia and then 
getting, hearing all these biodynamic producers talk about what they did or, or didn't do, and then tasting those wines was just, just an amazing experience because the, the through line of that grand tasting uh, is that every single one of these wines was just buzzing with energy, just, just electric, you know, um, alive, just the vitality of those wines was, I'd never had a tasting like that before. Um, you know, it maybe tasted little bits of it in some of my kind of old world tasting, but never laid out so clearly in front of me. It's like, oh, the, the connecting piece here is this biodynamic uh, agriculture that all these people are doing. And so that that really stuck in my head, which is why I was so interested then with Beaufrere. Um, and that's what kind of tipped the scale um, in Beaufrere's favor. It's like, I need to, I need to learn more about this. So, um, but uh, yeah, so going back to the question, which I've now forgotten. Um, Education, Jamaica. Yes, right. So it's like, okay, um, you know, somebody said once is uh, you need to learn the rules before you break them. And so I felt like since biodynamic and, you know, minimal intervention and, um, and some of these other concepts in winemaking is a little still unconventional, I guess. I, th I thought it was important that I officially learn rules before I decided how many of them I could break. Uh, and so that's, I decided that, um, you know, Schmeckata has this great program. Um, Al McDonald and Barney Watson were teaching at the time. And um, so uh, that was, uh, you know, commuting down from Portland and going to those classes seemed like the next right step for me. And as I mentioned, this great recession. So I had time on my hands um, to be able to uh, take these classes while kind of, you know, working here and there and everywhere, um, helping out um, as people needed it. And uh, so figuring out, yeah, let's, let's take, you know, all, all the, you know, background I had in, in the sciences and, and engineering, but learn what that meant in, in a wine setting. Like, so how does, how, does, how does the microbiology I know apply to, I mean, you know, bacterial kinetics are the same kind of regardless of, of, of what they are, um, but it's like, so what does that mean in a wine, in a wine environment? Like with environmental engineering, I was used to creating bioreactors, you know, we would, we would you know, pump up, sometimes we had to pump up groundwater, put it, you know, in this black box, um, change different parameters to try to get microbes to do the thing we want. It's like, okay, well, a wine fermenter is just a different type of black box. So, like, I need to understand, like, what are, what are those levers um, that you have to make the microbes do what you want to do? In this case, instead of creating hazardous compounds, let's say, how do you make them, convince them to make really good wine? Um, and so, but I, I wanted to learn those rules. Uh, and so, yeah, that's... Spent, spent a couple of years at Chemeketa doing just that. And Chemeketa was also such a great experience because, again, in Oregon, everyone knows everything, uh, knows everyone, rather. I think no one knows everything. Um, <laughs> I would hope not, anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, I, uh, all the people I went to school with are, are now, you know, all winemakers or vineyard owners or, you know, um, uh, in their own right. So just, you know, one more way of, of everyone knowing everyone is, uh, I think Shemekha has made a lot of those connections for a lot of people. So you obviously brought up biodynamics, which is gonna be my next question anyway. So I'm curious about your, you have this, you have this tasting experience where you kind of have the aha, like this is, this is, the through line here is, like you say, the biodynamic farming. Tell me about that in practice at Beaufort. What did you see in the terms of actually making, make, growing grapes biodynamically and making wine biodynamically in practice that either 
changed your mind about something or, or, or sort of reinforced your, what you were thinking? Right. So at, at Bill Frere, I guess during harvest, I, I didn't get to see as much biodynamics because as I now understand, there's kind of before and after, but um, harvest is harvest and, um, you know, there's not really free time for doing some of these others. But um, I did certainly uh, get to help out a little bit with um, their, their compost um, and just seeing how they were handling um, their, their compost at the time and a little bit starting to understand some of the importance of that kind of virtuous cycle, which uh, I now think is a really fascinating concept of biodynamics per, is with the compost being central, especially with combined with um, like a, a minimal intervention winemaking. What you're doing is by taking all of that must um, from the winery and composting it, uh, biodynamic compost is not the same as, as regular compost. And regular compost, over 15 days, you have to turn five times and maintain certain temperatures uh, to try to basically kill off pathogenic bacteria. And that is not what biodynamic compost does. Um, biodynamic compost takes a year to make, typically. You don't turn it very often. It, it gets warm, but it doesn't get hot. So what you're, well, it, I mean, not, not to the, not to the um, temperatures that is required by true compost. Mm -hmm. And so um, what you're actually doing is creating this amazing environment to, um, to, to allow these um, bacterial and fungal communities to replicate um, a nice warm place, but not hot enough to kill them. And so it's a totally different mindset where with, with compost, you're trying to cook everything off, kill all the microbes, and just be left with nutrients. But with biodynamic compost, what you're basically doing is creating this biological reactor to um, to multiply and 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 really uh, grow these uh, bacterial and fungal communities that are then applied back to the soil, and in 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 the vineyard. So, so now you're taking all of these, the, the musts and things from the previous vintage that successfully fermented your wines, that goes into the compost, doesn't die because it's not getting to the top. And now you're applying that through your vineyard. So what was successful last year is now basically inoculating your vineyard for the following harvest, right? So um, that concept is very different. What's kind of a quirk about this is that, so after 15 days, if you follow the, um, the composting guidelines, you can apply the, the, the compost, which is now magically transformed. You know, your cow poop, 15 days later, can now be magically transformed, applied, and have no restrictions on when you harvest your, your grapes or anything else. Whereas biodynamic compost, which takes a year um, to, to break down, um, is this beautiful soil, um, just rich, just smells amazing, um, nothing like uh, manure at all. We have to have um, uh, pre-harvest intervals on that because it's treated by the U by the U.S. as raw manure because it did not meet um, the official composting criteria. So we have pre-harvest interval on our year-old amazing biodynamic compost. But hey, if we just turn this one pile, you know, five times in 15 days, you know, you know, put this cow poop there, and next day harvest the grapes, you're fine. Um, I think that's just a funny quirk of how uh, some of the legislation gets done, but. Anyway, um, at Beaufort, I, I, I was connected a little bit to the compost, but there was so much work to do in the winery, and then I stayed on to help with some bottling and things. But um, what I what I did learn, of course, is is the the complexity and the depth and um, the vitality of Beaufort wines, and um, 
and Mike was, uh, Michael Etzel was really generous during harvest uh, to open up old bottles of, of Beaufrères, I mean, from the 80s, and, and like those wines were still alive. And it's like, okay, see, this is this biodynamics thing again. These wines are just beautiful. You know, it's Pinot Noir, which is, you know, it's, depending on who you talk to, it's like, well, age worthy, yes, but it doesn't have as much tannins. And so just how long can they age? Well, the Beaufrères wines were aging beautifully. And it's, it, it's like, there's, there's something, you know, it's, it's that same vitality that those biodynamic wines had, Beaufrères wines had it. And uh, yeah, just another checkbox of, you know, this is something that I need to learn more about. So how did your, you mentioned working with Andrew Rich the next year. Tell me how that experience uh, sort of differed or, or, or I guess how it was the next step on the path for you. Yeah, so whereas, you know, Beaufrère has these estate, um, you know, vineyards and um, did, you know, purchase, purchase some fruit. Uh, Andrew, you know, out of the Carlton Winemaking Studio was, um, you know, purchases all this fruit, doesn't have uh, an estate. So what was interesting about that is being able to work with varieties from, you know, all over, um, and, and for the first, my first time working with any fruit from Washington, Eastern Washington as well, uh, but a lot more varieties, you know, um, and so bringing in, you know, a dozen or more varieties, seeing how each one gets treated a little bit different. You know, the Grenache is very different than the Syrah. You know, I'm start, you know, starting to learn that yin and yang of, of uh, Rhone varieties um, and, and what you do to, to coax out what you want from, from those varieties. And then just working at the studio with um, this, you know, beehive of activity, all these winemakers, um, all having their different ideas, um, different ways of, of making things and just seeing just how different um, people did the same thing. You know, definitely no wrong way of getting from A to B, you know, just lots of different paths. And so being around all of that activity, you know, from the, from the safety of, of Andrew's little enclave on the on the top floor, where he just kind of was able to create his own little peaceable kingdom there, but um, you know, with all the uh, flurry of activity going on elsewhere. Uh, so, but learning both from Andrew, I mean, especially with uh, Andrew's a, a, a master blender um, because with you know with Pinot, of course, it's it's almost sacrilege to blend Pinot, right? That's so. Yes, you're blending across clones and 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 perhaps, but it's. Uh, it was with Andrew where I started learning like how you how you taste for blends, like how you find, you know, Rhone, many most Rhone grapes are meant to be together. And so how do you start tasting where those strengths are and but where the weaknesses are too in, in different wines and learning like so what does this if I taste this wine, what is this lacking? What is this what is this need? What where can I find that? You know, it's like, oh, you know, this has you know, this amazing mid palette, but this one's, oh, the aromatics. And so like, how do you start putting together those blends? Um, Andrew's really good at that. Mm -hmm. So um, I, uh, yeah, really enjoyed my time with, with him. Um, and yeah, I had a lot to learn. What came next for you? Um, yeah, let's see. Next, there was, uh, so I was living in Portland, so there was a lot of uh, kind of the, the Portland indie wine scene was getting started. And in fact, you know, many of my friends from Chemeketa were, uh, we were kind of now coming out of the great uh, recession a little bit, and but jobs were still a little scarce. So a lot of people were thinking, well, if I can't find a job, maybe I'll just make one. And you know, this is like a lot of the, the urban Portland winemakers were, were getting going. And 
So I was, I was helping out at um, some places there. Um, John Groshaw especially um, kind of took me under his wing and, and threw a lot of work my way, um, helping him uh, when he was still up in Portland. Um, so yeah, it's just, and that was, you know, doing, doing the Schmeckina program, helping out uh, wherever I could in the Valley. Um, and then uh, ultimately, uh, I, I ended up at McMinimins uh, for, for six years. And uh, so living in Portland and biking out to, to Troutdale, um, uh, that was uh, a, f a, fun, a fun six years. And it, uh, I think it was, uh, so I'm a Malcolm Gladwell fan, I don't know, but uh, he's got, you know, he has this, his, this concept of 10,000 hours for mastery and, and uh, he talks about like the, the Beatles playing at the Dresden and because they just played every single night and you know they and so when all of a sudden they came on onto the world stage they were already these amazing experts at their craft because they had they had this experience at the Dresden that really got them that 10,000 hours in some ways, um, I, I kind of look at my time at McMinimins like that. Not that I would ever claim mastery, because uh, this is, I think, one of the most fascinating things about wine is no one can master it, I don't think. But um, it, uh, there's so much going on. I mean, you know, M McMinimins uh, does does everything in house, right? I think people people understand that that they have you know breweries and distilleries and one winery, um, and but you know they were. They were one of the first people to uh, be making hard cider in Oregon, um, and and continued you know to this day doing this. Then and this is right around when hard cider craze started as well. So when I when I first went there, they're like, um, yeah, you know, we're, we make wine, but do you know anything about cider? Because like we make cider too. I was like, oh, actually I don't, but this will be another fun challenge. Um, and in particular with cider, that's that's constant. Like we were always fermenting cider. So getting back to this whole ten thousand hour thing is like, with with wine, you know, you get one chance a year to 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 make that make that product, and then it takes a year or two sometimes to even recognize what it is you did. And so there's this really long lag between what you did, trying to remember what you did, and, and tasting it years later to see, oh, if I did that, this is, this is the result. But if I did that, this is the result. Um, cider is much more immediate. It's, it's not as um, perhaps nuanced, um, but it's, you, know, you, you, can, you can firm it. You can get the, uh, the product uh, out like a month later, and then you just do it all again. And so you know, we were fermenting tens of thousands of gallons of, of cider just constantly. And so being able to, and like watching how the, you know, we, we used fresh pressed juice, uh, apple juice, but the, the constituents changed, um, you know, over time, depending on what, what apples, a lot of, a lot of apples are made to, to cold store and some aren't. And Washington state has like some of the, um, I think some of the, um, the largest cold storage in the United States because of all the apples. And, and so there's, there's apples everywhere. There's different varieties you can pick and choose from and have them press it and, and make a, um, a, like a custom juice blend for you um, and then you can have the juice delivered to you so um, it's like starting to learn oh you know these apples do this these apples do that trying to figure out what juice blends to do different times of the year because the flavor profiles are different and um, 
but then constantly doing it though. So you're being in a state of constant fermentation is different than a winery. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, there's a lot to learn from never stepping out of that realm. And so I did that for six years. Um, you know, again, they, they're, they're one of the larger wineries um, in Oregon that a lot of people don't know about because they self-distribute. But, you know, we were doing 400 plus tons of fruit, you know, 25,000, if you, like case production, if you put it all into cases, they were some of the earlier adopters of kegging wine. You know, they always uh, kegged their wine and, and distributed it. So uh, learning more about kind of that concept about the sustainability aspect of, you know, each keg is, you know, that's three cases of glass that you're not using. Um, so yeah, kind of interesting there. But then purchasing fruit from, and that's actually where um, the first time I was uh, coming down to Southern Oregon is we would purchase fruit from Southern Oregon. We'd purchase fruit from Willamette Valley, from Eastern Washington, from Eastern Oregon, um, from the Gorge. So um, getting able to, to see, drive out, you know, walk the vineyards, see all these different parts. Um, yeah, McMinimins is, is really what got me all over the state, kind of um, with all these different vineyards they were sourcing fruit from and, and you know, was part of what started my intrigue with, um, with Southern Oregon as well. Yeah, let's talk about that. Tell me about your uh, seeing Southern Oregon for the first time and, and from there becoming aware of Troon. Tell me about that, that sort of process. Yeah, so the, my very first um, experience with, with Southern Oregon wine was when I was working for John Groshaw. Um, he was, uh, we, were, we were blending this, this um, putting together this wine blend, and I was tasting out of one of the barrels, and it was, it was just 100% Syrah, and I was like, I was just blown away. I was like, where, what is, where is this coming from and why are we blending it? Because this is like the best Syrah I've tasted thus far in, like, from the West Coast. This is the most old world Syrah I've ever tasted, you know, coming from that East Coast experience of drinking, you know, Northern Rhone. I was like, where did, where did, how did this come to be? Because this Syrah is amazing. He's like, oh, I know. He's like, I'd love to be able to bottle this by itself. It's, but it's, I just, I only have a couple barrels of it. And um, it's this tiny little vineyard and, um, in Southern Oregon, it's called Upper Five. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the, it's, he's like, it's called Upper Five, but it's just a couple acres. It's like, I just, you know, I, I get a little bit of fruit from them at the time. Um, and that's uh, it's amazing fruit though. But, you know, we're gonna make this larger blend with it. And it really adds a lot to this other blend as well. But I agree, he's like, this is amazing stuff. And so I was like, wow, okay, Syrah from Upper Five, Southern Oregon, that's the best Syrah I've ever tasted um, that has come from the new world. So, so that was, you know, early on and then you know, it's so funny that how it comes around is that now, you know, Upper Five is one of the three biodynamic um, wineries in, in Southern Oregon. So once again, and I didn't even know that at the time that they were biodynamic, but it's like Upper Five, okay, biodynamic again. Um, it, it all comes back to that. Um, and then, yeah, and, but I had never been down here. And then with McMinimins, I was able to come down here and check out some of the vineyards in the area. Um, didn't, didn't get to go to Upper Five yet, because of course we weren't buying fruit for them, but, um, you know, eventually met, met Terry and Molly and um, uh, learned more about upper five but um, yeah so that's but that first experience was tasting one of those wines that just totally changes your perception of it's like I had never tasted Syrah from the new world that tasted like that and I wanted to know where that came from and how can I make that <laughs> so yeah and so what point did you become aware of Troon? Yeah, so, um, you know, Troon's got a pretty long history. I'd, I'd always known that they existed. Um, and, you know, they were, uh, at the time, you know, earlier on, they were exporting some wines, but um, not as many of their wines. Uh, they did have the tasting room, you know, up in, up in Carleton and at the time. And so I was uh, able to... Uh, the, uh, 
the the ad came out um, uh, for for a position down there, but what intrigued me was they in in, in that. They, dis they discussed the fact that they were about to engage um, on this journey, that um, you know, there was new ownership, and the, the vision was that we are going to start implementing biodynamics and organic farming. And I was like, this could be the best case scenario. So like, I've, I've always wanted to be involved in this, but like, I'll get it, I'll get to start like, right at the beginning. It's one thing to see all these um, you know, that have been doing biodynamics for a while, but, like, but how does that work and what does that transformation look like? And so, I mean, I, I knew immediately that this is exactly uh, what I wanted to do is, is get in and see that transformation and you know jumping forward the transformation is phenomenal I, I wish you know we all wish we would have done a better job of of documenting the before stage because the after stage is just stunning like no one would believe the changes that can take place in such a short time even though I did I mean I knew the power of, of microbes and like what you know how quickly they can change um, a, a landscape or, or, or the soils and I mean I, I knew that from my background but it's still amazing to see in person and um, but yes that's that's what drew me down there is the fact that, hey, we're about to do this, and we would like to hire somebody to help us do it. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was a, a very easy uh, yes for me. So with that said, tell me about your what Troom was when you got there, when you started there, and what were the, the kind of the major steps of the transformation and your, your role in those steps? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, Troon had been, had been farmed, um, you know, conventionally early on, um, it, had, it had been farmed, you know, with, uh, with live, um, and uh, so some sustainability farming uh, going on there, but there's still a, um, you know, there's, there's a lot more than can be done from, from that, and, with uh, with uh, you could see a lot of the a lot of the vineyard was 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 struggling um, and so biodynamics was seen as you know the way of of, of uh, healing both past practices and then moving forward um, to to have the healthier vines and what this discussion we've been having about what biodynamics allows in the final product, you know, that's like how can we connect these vines better to their place and really make these wines of vitality and, and depth and um, so so that's that's what the what the plan was and so um, we had to just start from ground zero, um, you know. Uh, a lot of us had tangentially experienced biodynamics, you know, in bits and pieces, but we didn't know how to build that practice. And um, our, our director of, of uh, agriculture, Garrett, um, does like to use that word practice um, with biodynamics in the same way as like yoga, like a yoga practice, right? Uh, it's, it's something that you do and you, um, you expand, you try new things, you kind of evolve in your understanding of that practice. And so biodynamics is a practice. And, and that's, that's how we started is uh, we, we had a great, uh, still have a great biodynamic consultant, uh, Andrew Beattie, who came in and was, was able to you know, just start leaving those breadcrumbs for us um, to uh, how, do we, how do we start here? What do we... Uh, what is the the best way of starting? You know, he's like we we start with the easy things, and you know we we kind of do some of these things. We get comfortable with them, and as they start becoming second nature, then you can add more. And and to, that's what we're doing to this day. Is is each each year we we add new things to our biodynamic practice, and that practice grows. Um, and what what we're 
what was once for us um, something new and um, and you know we had to figure it out is now totally second nature so that's you just start small and you keep adding to to your practice of biodynamics and uh, the first thing we did was was compost um, just uh, that's uh, and the, our, our compost pad is like right in the heart of our vineyard because in many ways compost is seen as as the heart of biodynamics it's it's getting that you know what we talked about earlier with um, uh, you know getting that bioreactor going getting all these uh, microbes and fungal um, communities like back out into the vineyard and really starting to enliven the soils um, and you know start creating health from the ground up so um, so compost was one of the first things we did um, started making some of our own biodynamic preparations um, the 500 and 501 the two cow horn preparations that yin and yang of, of biodynamics those were some of the first we did and we've slowly you know adopted uh, or kind of discovered the ability to both grow and make uh, most of, of all the other preparations ourselves but you know you start small and you start with the, the little things and you keep adding to it on the on the vineyard side specifically um, I what what have been sort of the largest transformations that you've seen um, in, in the time you've been there and and what is still to come right so um, you know ultimately so we started implementing biodynamics, and um, where we we knew we we had um, a lot of sick finds there. Uh, it it turned out that there was more more than even biodynamics could handle. Um, there we had very many uh, fungal diseases. Uh, uh, red blotch virus in particular was a tricky one. A lot of the vines were planted at a time when the nurseries didn't even understand that red blotch was a separate virus than some of the leaf roll viruses, so there was no testing for it. And so um, just unfortunately, a large swath of the vineyard was planted with red blotch virus um, just from the, from the beginning, because that um, was you know before those nurseries even knew to test for it. And um, you know that combined with some some other some other problems, we we realized that the way to go was we were going to have to replant the entire vineyard. Um, but the the sad thing is the vines were never healthier than the day we ripped them out of the ground, um, and it was it just felt it just you know felt so so wrong to to be like these vines which were you know fairly you know fairly struggling were recovering they they were they were getting healthier and the fruit was getting better and the um, my fermentations my spontaneous fermentations were were becoming you know faster and easier and like like you know everything was working but we had to remove them because there was this vector that would then reinfect um, other parts of the vineyard so there was there was a um, an end uh, to their to their life that uh, and so we we had to remove them and so we did but they were you know never never healthier and never providing better fruit than um, you know the harvest that we uh, ultimately had to pull them out of the ground but you know as they say with uh, every whatever you know difficulty there's an opportunity or um, so the opportunity we had then is to take a lot of what we had learned um, in deciding how we wanted to replant that vineyard and so it's a fairly unique opportunity to plant a new vineyard 
on top of an old one, and you know we had we had uh, dug uh, 72 test pits all over our site. Um, we had some soil consultants come up from Napa um, to to uh, characterize um, our soils all, all over. So uh, we had we had done these electric conductivity sleds, um, pulled them across the vineyard. Really had uh, amazing maps. Um, of, of what we had, where we had it, uh, learned some interesting things both from that and from um, our previous knowledge of the site of what was growing where, uh, ended up flip-flopping where like a red was here once, now it's, you know what, that's, that's a better spot for some of these white grapes and vice versa. And so when we, when we replanted, not only did we get to replant with varieties with an eye towards the future as well, with a changing climate. Um, uh, many of the grapes we planted are, are going to be struggling um, to, to ripen um, in today's climate, um, but with, with an eye towards the future, um, that could be the sweet spot in five to 10 years. It's you know, hard to know. But um, uh, there's a lot of, with those Rhone varieties, there's a lot of adaptability and, and a lot of, um, uh, you can do a lot with them. Um, so, you know, like my, my Kunwa's uh, now, which uh, is one of these really late ripeners, you know, it luckily also makes a great rosé and it'll make a, grose, a great rosé up until it probably starts making an amazing red. Um, and that'll all be climatically driven, you know. Um, but uh, so as we replanted, we were able to get the varieties we wanted in the locations, in the soil types that we wanted, and um, both, both for now and with an eventual goal um, towards um, uh, any potential um, climate uh, changes that may occur, both in how we planted them, all of, all of our reds, um, with the exception of, of Syrah um, and Negret, um, uh, our head train, for example. So uh, we decided to, to, to go with head trained on these new vines um, as a way head trained vines are more drought tolerant. They um, have a better ability to shade the, the fruit from um, you know, harsher sun rays, um, from some more protective of, of grapes, um, able, to, able to do better with uh, lower amounts of water and that seems like a really good thing to put in place uh, for any climate variability that may be coming. Um, you know, we, again, and also the, the biodynamic practices that we implement, so all of these vines have now been planted organic and biodynamic from day one. And um, even as we're planting, we're inoculating the, um, every, every vine, uh, the roots with biodynamic uh, root dip with, so all sorts of beneficial uh, microbes, fungal communities are there from the start. And so these vines are getting the best start in life and are gonna be treated organically and biodynamically through their whole life. And, and so we're, the vineyard that we now have is not, there's often seen to be like a 20 to 30 year lifespan in a lot of commercial vineyards um, before it has to be replanted. That is not the case with Troon now. Uh, we're, we fully anticipate these vines will will be here long after we're gone. Um, people, you know, Craig's, Craig's phrase, uh, Craig Camp, the general manager's phrase is, you know, people who we will never meet will make wines from these vines that we will, you know, never drink because these, these vines will now outlast us all. And that is, that's what we now have going at Troon, which is pretty exciting. 
You talked earlier about sort of part of the point of the biodynamic of the, of the changeover is to kind of eliminate the, the winemaker uh, impact or the obvious winemaker impact. So tell me about then your role as winemaker. Um, if you're trying to not impact the vines, what, what are you trying to do? What is sort of your role in the process? Yeah, I have to be careful answering that question or I might talk myself out of a job. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, right there in, so, um, Demeter, the organization that um, is is um, is in charge of biodynamic certification. Um, there's Demeter USA. There's Demeter International. There's multiple Demeters out there, but they all talk and agree. Um, Demeter USA has its own standards, both for the farm, um, for for the farming and in the vineyard, but they also have standards for the winery. So. What is actually even more unique ab about what we're doing is we are not only um, organic and biodynamic certified and regenerative organic certified in the vineyard, we have all of those same certifications in the winery. And um, I can't remember exactly, there's like 13 or 14 vineyards in Oregon that are certified biodynamic, but just a handful of wineries. Um, and so they're right, the very first thing that the um, biodynamic wine standard says is that um, biodynamic wines are meant to be a reflection of place um, with uh, minimal um, you know input from the winemaker um, they are supposed to be a reflection of like that farm ecosystem from which they came and the entire concept of biodynamics is that each farm is like a an almost seen as an organism with different different parts of that organism providing the respiration and the, and the circulation. And so learning your property, like what, what aspects of your property, um, kind of how they function together as this whole, that's why biodiversity is such an important part of, of biodynamics is trying to break up in particular, you know, vineyards are all monocultures, you know, they're, they're different, they're all clones, um, you know, and uh, almost completely vitus vinifera. And, so how do we break that up? How do we add um, in biodiversity to increase the functioning of that farm organism? Um, and, and in particular, the resiliency um, of that. You know, if you've, got, if you've got a string of dominoes that are all one thing and the first domino goes over, you know, all the dominoes fall. But if between all those dominoes, if you think of those dominoes as your, as your rows of grapes, but if between all those dominoes you have um, different plants, different species, different things, that first domino tips, it hits something else and it stops. Um, you know, that in a nutshell is uh, what a lot of this, you know, increase with biodiversity and biodynamics is, is for, is that resiliency there. Let's, let's stop the dominoes from tipping. Let's have something disrupt um, any potential pest or disease or something that's coming in. Um, but um, in, in the winery then, um, th those, you've spent so much time and effort out in the farm, in the vineyard, that you really don't want to alter that with some like winemaking signature or something in the cellar. And it also mentions, you know, there should not be a um, pronounced oak presence in the wine. Like that's uh, right there in the, in the first uh, paragraph. They, they want the wines to be a reflection of that place, you know. And biodynamics has been seen as a a lens that helps to like focus the terroir. So you know, every place winemakers are always trying to learn what is their terroir. How can I express that in um, in the wine the best to have a wine that's unique that has its own voice um, that speaks of a place, and biodynamics maybe takes 
has the ability to to focus that to bring it into focus. This may be a better way of saying. And so, and that's what I tasted in, at the French Embassy with all those biodynamic wines. Is they all had a voice. They all spoke of a place. Um, and so, the biodynamic winemaking standards basically tries to interrupt humans' tendency to fiddle, um, to maybe con to overly exert control over something that perhaps we should not attempt to control as much. Um, and, and so that's, that's what we try to do is, is step back and, you know, there's um, the, the one straw revolution, you know, so-called do-nothing farming, there's actually do-nothing farming is not doing nothing in the same way that do nothing winemaking is not do nothing um, so I am going to try to keep my job um, but uh, it, it is um, it's humbling uh, because you take away what few controls winemakers do have over an inherently um, chaotic process biologically driven um, you remove most of those um, those uh, safeguards that you have um, and so you it's just in the same way that out in the vineyard, observation, experimentation, and just paying attention to the small details is what you need to do. That's what happens in a biodynamic cellar, because you you can you, know, you you can only nudge. You definitely can't shove. Like if a wine, you you need to recognize immediately if a wine is zigging when you really wanted it to zag because like all, all you all you have are these little chiropractic manipulations, right? Like just these, I don't know, little taps um, to hope that it kind of, you know, stays within some semblance of boundaries that you find acceptable. Um, and so I guess it's in, in the cellar then that just means paying a lot more attention to um, very small details and trying to learn which, what, small amount of control you have over, especially with these um, spontaneous fermentations. We've, we've looked at these, we've um, sequenced a lot of, um, of this. We've, we did a cool study where we sequenced, uh, we just shotgun DNA um, sequenced from the soils. Uh, we did swabs from the grapes. Um, when, the, when the grapes came into the, the day before harvest, when the grapes came in, we took samples from the must. We did samples at the middle of harvest, and then we did, or in the middle of the fermentation rather, and then we did samples um, during barrel aging, so it's from of of the same lots, right? So from soil to grape to must to fermentation to aging, and looking at how those um, um, microbial communities change uh, when you know, for example, we don't use any sulfur at crush, so we are not disrupting any of that microbiota um, that's coming in um, from the vineyard. So you know, we we have an entire symphony of of. Of microbes present in our wine and trying to learn what interactions are important. So, you know, a more conventional approach in a very similar way to conventional farming is where, you know, you try to, um, uh, you know, you, you till the soil, you um, spray chemicals to prevent weeds, and then you have your grapes growing, you know, in um, perfect little rows with um, nothing else, you know, dead soil and vines. Um, you know, some winemaking can almost be seen the same way as like you get your juice in, you bomb it with sulfur, sterilize that juice, like everything's dead. Um, and then you create this monoculture of a single yeast, you throw it in there, you want it to do its thing, you know. Uh, in the same way that biodynamic farming is completely opposed to that, biodynamic winemaking is as well. So we have to trust the 
the microbial communities that we have in place, that, that these communities are inherently balanced. Um, we have a healthy vineyard, we have a healthy microbial populations in the soil, on the grapes, those same populations should also be healthy in our ferments. And so by not disrupting that, we get to see what that complexity is doing. And again, it's one of these cases where we're just starting to get the tools in science to look at these complexities because it's not just the presence or absence of, of one group or family of microbes versus the other. It's like, yes, ultimately, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, this yeast, this will probably become dominant and do the bulk of the fermentation, but there's a lot of other things that's happening, and we're learning with um, that the presence of certain microbes or um, can alter the gene regulation of other things. So the fact that they're here, they may, like, when we first study things, we always just put it in a vacuum, right? It's like, oh, we're going to take these things and just these things, grow it in this wine media and see what they do. Oh, they don't do anything. They must not be important. You know, that was that was the, how we initially did all these things. And it's like, oh, the only thing we care about is Saccharomyces and maybe a couple of these other um, spoilage bacteria, but other than that, nothing else is important. But then you start learning, oh, okay, well now we've got new tools in science. Now we can see if you have this and this um, versus just this. Hey, this thing is acting differently. Its metabolism is different. Um, the presence of this is changing what this does. And so now multiply that by several thousand or you know, uh, with all of these different groups of microbes. So like we're just scratching the surface. We have no idea how it's just way too complex of a media. There's hundreds or thousands of, of families sometimes, um, you know, to say nothing of genus and species of these microbes, which are amazingly diverse. How, how do those community interactions change? What ultimately, you know, what sort of fingerprint can those things do? Like the human ability to perceive certain compounds, you know, down to parts per trillion, you know, so it, you know, we, there are many things that, um, that still the best way of detecting something is by sniffing it or tasting it, like um, our, our you know, we, we can't, analytically, sometimes we can't measure things as precisely down to such small levels that humans are capable of detecting. And there's huge ranges of differences between one person and another um, on all these things. But so what are some of these things that at first we thought didn't do anything, and now we're like, oh, actually, this thing is changing what this is doing. Even if they are only around for days or so, I mean, we're, we only need parts per trillion to um, alter what we're able to, to perceive in that wine. So what, what is important here? Like, you know, how do, how, do, how do we know what we're doing in these spontaneous fermentations with these just complex systems? We, we don't know. And so that's what I find fascinating as a winemaker is just, you know, we're, we're just at, I think, a very interesting point, just as we were a couple a couple years ago, even, um, starting to learn about the soil microbiome and the interconnectedness of, of what's happening beneath the soil. We just never had the tools to peer beneath the soil and, you know, knowing, oh my gosh, these trees are, not only are they communicating to each other, they're, they're sending nutrients back and forth, um, you know, microbially mediated by pumping down these root exudates and, and these plants are almost 50% of what they create through photosynthesis. They are leaking through these roots to, um, to kind of 
change the microbiota that are living in the root systems. You know, so how does that correspond to what's going on in these complex um, fermentations? Um, so we don't know, and uh, I find that fascinating. But that is that's what we're trying to do. Um, you know, in a very limited way in the cellar is, you know, what do we have going on here versus what do we have going on here, and um, how how does that change the wine? And is there anything I can do to try to set the conditions appropriately to get like I really like what this did and so it's like how did that end up that way um, and is it replicatable like or is it just too complicated am I you know what what can I learn from this that I might be able to do to have those settings similar that perhaps a similar thing may occur again so I guess yeah uh, managing chaos is what uh, a biodynamic winemaker does to the best of our ability you mentioned just scratching the surface and still kind of figuring out what comes next. So tell me, take us through kind of future vision, next five, ten years at Troon, what the, as a, a kind of on a macro scale and then also kind of on your, in your role and your scale, what you're looking to accomplish. Yeah, so um, next five to ten years are going to be just really exciting ones for Troon. As I mentioned, you know, we've had to replant the entire vineyard, but we now have 20 different grape varieties uh, there, and pretty much over the next, um, several of them are already starting to produce, and then over the next three to four years, um, all of them will, will be producing. Um, and uh, we, we replanted in, in chunks, um, starting in 2019, where we started with some new plantings, um, and then started replanting um, bits and pieces, about 10 acres a year, um, removing and replanting. So I have all of these varieties coming online, many of which have, to my knowledge, never been grown in Oregon before. We have Negrette, and we have Tiburon, for example, uh, Rosessa, uh, that uh, I doubt that there exists in Oregon. Um, you know, some of these more unique white Rome varieties, uh, Pique Poule, Claret Blanche, Bourbonc. Um, I, there probably are some of those, but um, I don't know that they are in Southern Oregon and uh, certainly not the Applegate to my knowledge. So figuring out what, what these do here. Um, you know, we, uh, sometimes people always like to ask, like, how do you see your region like an old world region? Um, you know, we, we, we don't. Um, and so we don't know how, how these how these varieties are going to grow and, and the type of wines they will make from the Applegate Valley. Uh, we're pretty darn sure it's a great climatic fit, these varieties for where we're at, but um, we have, you know, we've had experience with, you know, Syrah and Grenache, um, you know, at, at our, our site. Um, some of these other, uh, Vermentino certainly um, at our site. We've replanted um, a, a lot of Vermentino as well, but then many of these varieties are new for us. Um, last year we harvested Morvedra for the first time um, you know, uh, Carignan, Sinso, uh, Kunwa, these are all new for us uh, at Troon. And so figuring out what those varieties mean at our site, uh, what, you know, and, and we have uh, four different soil types. We try to do a good job of scattering around. We, we planted as many different clones of these varieties as we could find, as we could get our hands on, many of which had to come directly from UC Davis's Foundation Plant Service, um, with the kind of the master library of, of um, clean clonal material in the United States, uh, because a lot of these things are rare. So we just, you know, got some twigs from them and, you know, had some nurseries graft them and, and um, you know, grow them up to get at least a couple 
couple hundred plants sometimes. We've been planting a bunch of rootstock because these things are so rare that you know we'll have to be field grafting uh, when we can get the twigs necessary to do it because there's just not enough plant material of these things in the United States to plant out a commercial uh, vineyard with them. So yeah, over the next year, this is all coming to fruition. We've 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 had five years of of replanting and of kind of getting our biodynamic program and our organic program up and running and we're we're coming to the end of that and it's uh, going to be this whole new era now of okay now we're no longer adding you know let's let's get our arms around what we have and what that means uh, for for the grapes we're growing and the wines we're making and so yeah the next five to ten years all of that will be you know, literally coming to fruition and um, being able to start seeing just what we've done <laughs> over, over the past five years and what that means for the wines we will be able to create. So obviously, um, biodynamic practices are becoming, have become more common in, in Oregon wine. Tell me about what you've seen uh, with sort of the biodynamic, the, the growth of biodynamic farming here, and what are the what are what's kind of necessary to keep it growing or to take kind of to take the next step forward in Oregon? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think biodynamics um, and and also regenerative organic um, agriculture, which is of which I mean, so before ROC, uh, the regenerative organic certified, is a, a newer certification, and up until that, um, de biodynamic Demeter was absolutely the only regenerative organic or kind of farming um, certification that existed. Um, but now there's a, uh, I almost want to say parallel, it's not really competing, it's, it's a parallel um, system here with ROC um, that looks at um, many of the same things. In fact, if you are Demeter certified, you pretty much can check off two of the three pillars of, of ROC. Um, it's, it's not quite as simple, but um, then ROC has additional um, certifications for um, involving the worker and um, social justice issues and worker welfare and things like that. Uh, but yeah, with biodynamics, um, it's such a regenerative farming in general is such an, an obvious fit for Oregon. I mean, it's it's such a green, you know, uh, sustainable uh, uh, state uh, that adopting these regenerative farming practices um, seems like a no-brainer, especially given that our climate is so well suited for it. We're not Virginia, you know, like, like this would be very hard to do in Virginia. A handful of people do it. I really respect them um, for, for trying, um, but we have it so much easier here um, with our disease pressures. And, you know, it's a little harder in the Willamette Valley than it is in Southern Oregon, but, but you know, not by much. Uh, I mean, bi biodynamics is always about, it's very farm specific and um, there are no um, there's nothing prescriptive um, about biodynamics. It's all, these are, this is the toolbox, and how do you learn to adapt that to this vineyard versus that vineyard just down the street? Um, and that toolbox may vary just in those two locations. It's, um, which is why, so moving forward, uh, we're, Troon is, is trying to start larger conversations about biodynamics, not just uh, for, for vineyards, but in our area, we've learned of a lot of other smaller farms um, of all types uh, that, that do practice biodynamics, and we want to try to bring that community together. Let's share these experiences. Um, what has worked for you? What have you tried? Uh, every, every farmer has you know uses that toolbox differently and finds different solutions so we would like to help be a um i don't know a, 
uh, a way of pulling all of those disparate you know thoughts together and you know we can you know s simple ways we can get together and make biodynamic preps together um, it, it might be daunting for people getting into biodynamics to they know about all these preps they have all these weird numbers and like what does that all mean and you know just to try to demystify it because you know at, at it's hard it's just farming and um, not that there's anything just about farming um, <laughs> the uh, Brian Brian white uh, the, the one of the proprietors of Troon he likes to say you know farming isn't rocket science it's actually much harder um, because in rocket science you can use math and you can have you know trajectories and you know if you put this much thrust the rockets gonna go here you have no such certainties with farming and um, but so yeah getting those conversations going so that you um, can learn from the experience of others and you know if, if Troon can help be a connector for that it's something we would like to do uh, education is very important for us that's why we have um, a, a biodynamic an educational biodynamic area um, with signs you can do self-guided tours like um, just you know grab a glass of wine go walk out you can read some of these placards learn about some of the different um, biodynamic um, these kind of medicinal herbs that are used in biodynamics um, you can see them growing uh, we've got a, a native uh, botanical garden basically which uh, is we have almost a hundred species of native plants flowering plants shrubs uh, from all many of which were harvested directly from um, the Siskiyou mountains just right around us hyper local we've worked with a local um, botanist to, to help us get this but so you're able to see all this different uh, diversity um, walk around they all have you know little placards you can identify them it's like instead of planting these in, invasive or um, just show plants in your house it's like hey you know this is a native plant it has tons of habitat value and it's beautiful like maybe I should use this for my landscaping rather than you know some um, some plant that has no you know uh, no value for pollinators or things like that so um, that's self-guided tours there um, so yeah education is really a big part of what we want to do and so if we can help get those conversations started maybe just sometimes it's just that initial hurdle that people might need to get over to just oh well this is how we started we we started in this way maybe you want to try this you know you don't have to jump right into certification or something although we do we do value certification there is uh, a lot to be learned from being from being subjected to an annual audit um, you know there's that we, we get we get three audits a year for organic for biodynamic and for regenerative organic so there's someone coming out physically to our location looking over all our records like uh, talking through what we've done um, and not only is that valuable to you know keep you honest but also it's a it's a great learning experience too I mean these these auditors have you know go from farm to farm to farm so they are this wealth of knowledge um, and they you know these these organizations want you to succeed. Demeter wants you to be a good um, biodynamic practitioner, and, and they can offer a lot of advice um, along the way. So we do you know, enjoy and, and are supportive of certification, but we can also help people to just get started. And you know, maybe eventually they'll find that, you know what, I think I can go for a full certification. But we would, we would like to help people in any way we can to maybe get over some of those just initial hurdles because once you get that ball rolling you could do the same thing we did just start small keep adding parts of your practice you know just keep adding to that practice as you move forward and eventually say hey I'm, I'm a biodynamic farm now so 
Switching gears just a little bit, you had talked earlier about your experience at McMinniman's uh, making cider. So tell us about Alter Ego and how that plays a role in, in your life. Yeah, so um, yeah, I, I uh, started Alter Ego with uh, Anne Hubach um, and my wife in Portland and kind of part of that cider craze. And that was, that was fun, um, uh, just a, a fun project to do, whereas wine has, you know, even though I'm breaking a lot of them, wine has more rules, you know, on what you can and can't do. C cider is just, you know, it hands out, like, you can do whatever you want. You know, that's why people are putting, like, jalapenos in their cider. I mean, you would never do that to wine, at least I hope not. And, um, you know, just, like, whatever. So there's, there's so much... You know experimentation and um, uh, that was that was allowed in, in cider. You know consumers um, don't have the same you know concepts of what a cider should or shouldn't be. So we were able to do kind of all this fun stuff. But um, when I when I moved down to um, to Southern Oregon, uh, my wife and I did uh, you know we're no longer involved in Alter Ego. So I haven't been a part of Alter Ego for five years now. But um, it was it was fun. You know I was making all the cider for McMinimans as well, and so, you know it's fun to to be able to do something for yourself. So yeah, that that was a part of my part of my life while I was up in Portland. But I have not been involved. Uh, since then. However, at Troon, um, we have planted an orchard. Uh, we have 43, I believe, uh, different varieties of French heirloom cider apples we have in the ground. So um, I should have mentioned that as what's next for Troon. Um, you know, it takes a while to get a vineyard started. It takes even longer to get an orchard started. So, uh, but five to 10 years from now, we will start having all of these um, French uh, heirloom, you know, mostly bittersweets, but we've got some, a bunch of sharps and, and some, some sweets, and we'll be able to be making some um, biodynamic uh, hard, hard cider from the apples we're growing there. So that's, that'll be a fun experimentation. There's, these apples are, are much more rare even even harder to get than some of the uh, vine material we were getting. Uh, we worked with a a local orchardist in their area who also happens to love French ciders. Um, just came back from a trip to Normandy and Brittany um, a couple months ago. I was really jazzed uh, about it. But. She's helped us track down these really obscure um, French varieties that I can't, you know, pronounce half of them, and I've never heard of before. Um, but we're going to see what they do, and uh, you know, we might only have three or four trees of each of them. But uh, so it's a it's a bit of a of a test orchard to see which one of these varieties might stick with a Southern Oregon climate. Um, but we'll be able to make some um, orchard-based ciders. You know, that's you know, so working with. Alter ego and, and things like that, where you know you're purchasing um, juice, um, and like I said, you you do have uh, some control over what's in that juice. You can kind of pick and choose different apple varieties um, to some uh, limited degree, but for the most part, they're not cider apple varieties. They're um, you know the you know Fujis and and Golden Delicious and things you you buy in the store. Um, they're more eating varieties, so there's only so much complexity you can get um, from a more limited selection. But uh, with all these cider apples, we'll be able to make some really interesting um, orchard-based ciders. And to me, in my mind, that is the, the next frontier for cider is trying to adopt more of a wine-like model. It's, you know, we've, there's been all this experimentation with all these different flavors of ciders, but now I think what people want to do is be able to connect 
to a place, just like they do with wine. And so obviously being a vineyard and an orchard, it's a kind of a shoe in for us to then have ciders of place in the same way that our wines will be of place. So we'll have distinctive ciders that should be taste very specifically of our location, 100% estate. And um, you know, we won't be using flavorings or anything else. It'll be you know, pure cider, but hopefully will be very uh, unique and allow us to express our farm in a different way, through a different media, with a different fruit. So in addition to what we've already talked about, tell me sort of what comes next for you. What are you looking forward to wine-wise, cider-wise, or outside of that? What's kind of on your horizon? Yeah, so I love experimentation. And you know, as I just said, we have five to 10 years of nothing but experimentation. You know, it's, it was, it's a little frustrating. You know, you get to a place, I start making wines, and I was like, oh, I really love what I did there. Oh, we just pulled it out of the ground. I'm never gonna make that wine again. Um, it's like, so let's start over. And then like, and you do that again and again and again. Just when I was starting to understand what I had, what I had is now gone and I have something else. But that's also the opportunity to get to relearn um, and and reassess what I thought I knew um, or what I had maybe learned is now going to be different or not. Um, and so, what what sort of experimentation do I do? Uh, you know, when you when you when you show somebody a bottle of wine and you're like, you know, this is to not, um, and it has you know, uh, fifty percent whole cluster in it or something. That, that that's not really 50% whole cluster to not. Like when I, when I make something, it's I have a fermenter of this, a fermenter of this, a fermenter of this, a fermenter of this, and I'm doing something different in all those fermenters. And I can see myself doing that you know, to, for the next many years, because uh, I, don't, I don't know, you know, like how do you learn but, but to try? And so I need to try, I need to try and see, oh, well, in this year, and we had these sorts of growth conditions and I had you know, these sorts of, of grapes. I did this and this is what happened, but in this other year, or maybe it was a warmer year, a colder year, or, you know, my stems were greener or they were, they were browner. Or, you know, I had this, you know, what does that mean? So the next years will just be full of, ex of experiments and you know, I never make one thing. Uh, all of my wines, every single one is a blend because I, they're always a blend of all the different things we have going on in the cellar. Even if it's 100% it's not, it's you know, with some destemmed, with some whole cluster, with some this, some that. Uh, you know, we, we foot trod these, we did, you know, we didn't over here. And so it's all experiments. And so the next five to 10 years is continuing to conduct all this experiments to learn what it is we have and learn what the wines want to be, right? Because that's, you know, I, I don't see myself as so much making the wines I want to make always. I make the wines that Troon wants to make, that, that, that this farm organism wants to make. And to learn that, I have to give it as many opportunities um, to try different things so that you know, it can select the wine it wants to be. And when I learned that, then I, I doubt I will ever, there will never be a recipe, but I might learn some things about some varieties that want to be handled in a certain way and others differently, but that's all learned through experience. So there will be years of that to come. 
And Kyle, the last question for you is uh, talking about sort of more regionally. Obviously, you talked about Southern Oregon sort of being a bit behind and and and, and catching up a bit to, to the Wyoming Valley. Um, what do you what, what sort of what have you seen um, in, in the Applegate Valley, and what what comes next for that region? Yeah, I mean, so the the blessing and the curse of the Applegate is the the variety, the the pure um, uh, the potential is there because in. If you look at a geological map of the of Oregon, you know you'll see big swaths of colors um, in different parts of the the state. You know there's uh, Willamette Valley. You know we've got our sedimentary, we've got our volcanic, we've um, got um, our wow, just uh, totally mind blank there. Um, but uh, anyways, you, you you've got you know big big um, kind of chunks of of similar. Um, soils and places. When you look at Southern Oregon, in particular the Applegate Valley, it's this cacophony of colors, and it's the the Siskiyou Mountains. While they they look similar, maybe to the the coastal range or the Cascades, they're utterly different. Um, for one thing, the, the Siskiyous are an east-west uh, mountain range. It's actually the most biodiverse region in in North America, certainly in the lower 48, um, because of how unique it is. It's, it's some of the largest, if um, not including Alaska, but it's the largest um, untracked wilderness um, in in the continental U.S. There, there are barely even logging roads that cut through a lot of the Siskiyous. There is no um, you know east-west like highway. So if, you know from southern Oregon, if you want to get to the coast, you drive into California and then back up. Like you know even the Rogue River is is wild and scenic because there is no road that follows the Rogue River. Rogue River as it cuts through the um, the mountains there. So um, we, it's a very interesting place, and they were actually formed by um, island arcs in, in the Pacific that slammed against the continental plate and got accreted. And so all of those um, island arcs have different geologies. They came from different places, slammed against. So you can find virtually any soil type in our region, you just have to look for it. And so there's, and with all these different elevations, so there's different elevations, different soil types, different aspects, south facing, north facing, you know, whatever. Um, so if you want to find something, you will be able to find it somewhere. And that is the, the blessing and the curse is that, you know, un, unlike you know, people often ask, oh, what's the signature variety? And the signature variety isn't a variety. The signature variety is diversity um, of Southern Oregon and the Applegate in particular, um, because there, you can find anything you're looking for to do what it is you want to do. It's, you know, if you if you want to grow Pinot Noir in Southern Oregon, just move up several hundred, if, if not, you know, thousand feet. Like, that's the other thing. You know, we're at elevation. Our our valley floor is higher than you know the high elevation sites in the Willamette Valley. So, um, we have a lot of a lot of elevation to play with. You know, as as you sit there in the winter time, you know, you'll be looking out and um, you can see just a couple hundred feet above us is snow line and it's totally coated in snow. But you know, a couple hundred feet where we we are in the valley. It's you know we're getting a gentle rain, and so it's uh, there's a lot going on, and that is a huge opportunity for the region. And so getting more people trying more things and finding um, you know our region doesn't want to be one thing. Our, our region wants to be many things, and it's finding those different things that it can do well in different places. So I think that the growth of Southern Oregon will be in learning. Um, you know, not not in narrowing, um, but perhaps even in broadening. Um, you know what we can do from an already diverse situation, um, finding out 
you know, what works best in, in this highly diverse region that we have. So I think the, the growth of our region will come from just more people spending more time um, looking at, at what's possible. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover today? I can't imagine we missed much. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time uh, and for sharing your story with us, and a special thanks to Nate's voice for holding out this entire interview. <laughs> the T got great, it through. I was worried. Good job, good job, T. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you so much, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.